Hello and welcome to the Wholehearted Healer Podcast. My name is Dr. Avine Banish and I will be your host. This is the weekly podcast that helps women pause in their busy lives, drop into the heart, and remember their next right step. I am so happy that you're here. Hello, friend, and welcome to another episode of The Wholehearted Healer. I'm really excited that you're here. I'm your host, um, Dr. Avian Banish, and I'm really excited today to have a juicy conversation with Shay, Shay and the Catskills. Um, I met Shay a few weeks ago. Um, she came highly recommended from a, no- a number of friends um, as a skilled tarot reader, um, among many other things. And the reading really... Um, my time spent with her really blew me away in terms of her skill and um, just some of the messages that came out of that that reading. And so I was excited to dive in and have a conversation. Welcome, Shay. Thank you so much for having me, Avine. It's great to be here. It was a memorable reading. <laughs> um, and so I wonder, you know, I'm sure there are people um, who are listening, who are really familiar with tarot and others who the word itself, I think for some people is a charged word. And so I wonder if we could kind of go back to your um, origin story from this lifetime anyway, and just talk a little bit about, you know, what formed you and brought you to the work that you're doing now. Mm. Yeah. Thanks for the question. Uh, So I Grew up in suburban South Jersey, went to college in New York City, lived there for 12 years, did the whole corporate world thing, was a massage therapist, was searching and searching, and found myself in my late 20s, early 30s, um, living at a monastery near where I live now. And I trained there for almost 15 years. I lived there for 10 years and ordained as a monastic while I was there, took life vows, thought I was going to spend the rest of my life there. Uh, as it turns out, spoiler alert, not true. <laughs> um, and it was actually, uh, I was thinking about it before we talked, that I received my first tarot deck on my ordination day from a member of the Buddhist community. That was their gift to me, was a mother wow. piece tarot deck. And it sat on a shelf for about 18 months until the summer of 2019. I was, I don't know if I knew that I was leaving the monastery, but something was, the ground was shifting. And I started pulling a card a day just for some guidance. And uh, late that summer, I had a day where really everything came apart. It became clear to me that I wasn't going to be living there. I didn't know what was going to happen next. And I was devastated. And I went up to my A-frame cabin and pulled three cards. And it was the Seven of Swords, the Ten of Swords, and the Hanged Man. And it was a moment where I was alone and... uh, just so uh, devastated. And yet I felt very not alone after I pulled those cards. I was like, oh, something is seeing me uh, in this very private moment of agony. And I was kind of hooked. And so I started studying really deeply. And if my time at the monastery taught me anything, it was how to study something closely and in great detail. And I was also sort of pondering, like, how am I going to make a living after living in a monastery for 10 years, earning no income through most of my 30s and early 40s? 
And so spiritual care work through the tarot just seemed like it kind of landed in my body as something that I could do. And as it turns out, my relationship with the tarot as an oracle feels very profound and much deeper than, you know, four years of study and practice. And I'm trusting that. So that's, uh, so I did leave the monastery in late 2019 and six months later, lockdown happened. And so uh, I'm still kind of figuring out what, what my lay life is now. And so I am a queer artist and tarotist, intuition facilitator, organizer. um, And that's kind of what I'm up to at this point. Yeah. So much in there that I'd love to ask you about. I love the phrase spiritual care with tarot because um, my time with you really felt like spiritual care in that um, like tarot as one of many tools that we have to connect with the unseen and um, and that larger world that is watching over us and can that we can tap into for guidance. Um, so it's just a really beautiful phrase, and I think it really encompasses um, what you do for people and it um, and that depth that that over decade of monastic life and um, practice, like you bring, you know, nothing is, nothing is lost in our journey. And so it really felt um, there was a wisdom and a depth that um, you don't always find in people who are doing this work. And I found it to be really nourishing and really grounded at the same time. Mm, I'm so glad that was your experience. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I wonder if you can, you know, most of the people who listen to this podcast, I would say, are um, not monastics. They're householders who are juggling a lot of different things, who the idea of, um, for some, I'm sure, like this idea of escaping to a monastery for a while sounds great, but the actual practice of that, I think, would terrify a lot of people. Um, can you just talk about this practice of being with yourself for that length of time and and kind of engaging in that depth of practice? Mm. Thanks for the question. This, nobody's asked me this uh, particular question, and I'm sort of curious, what am I going to say <laughs> as I reflect on it in this moment? What what first comes to mind is that your question immediately s- sort of presupposes being alone with yourself, and that is certainly true. We uh, At the monastery that I train at, They spend one full week out of every month in silent meditation. They're actually doing that right now. And so that's three months out of every year where you're not talking to people. Actually, uh, at this particular place, uh, we lower our eyes during meditation retreats and we spend many, many hours a day staring at the floor. So it is alone with your mind in that way. And the mark of monastic life where I trained was that you are not alone. You are living in community. Mm -hmm. Um, Monasticism comes from monos, one. And so the schedule is sort of like we all move as one body. So everybody's eating at the same time and eating the same thing and working at the same time and waking up at the same time. And I think that at the beginning of my training, I found that incredibly uh, comforting and that structure made me feel really held at a time in my life where 
I had a lot of freedom before I went to the monastery and I kind of didn't know what to do with myself. And so that degree of structure gave me a lot of freedom to study my internal world. Mm -hmm. And living in community is really hard. I think we live in a very toxic culture um, overall. And that culture is present in every organization and institution. There's no outside of it. And so we're all so deeply conditioned, you know, by the culture or families of origin, we bring all of that with us. And then you kind of throw a bunch of people together in an atmosphere where you're not getting a lot of sleep and you're eating oatmeal every day for breakfast and spaghetti every Sunday at lunch. You know, it's the little skirmishes that break out are over like, you know, what kind of tea do we have? What kind of sweetener for the tea do we have? How many different kinds of milk are we, you know, so it's just, you're living with humans Mm -hmm. and, you know, monastic life is a profound and unique opportunity that not very many people for various reasons can avail themselves of whether they want to or not. And so I do recognize how incredibly, uh, unique and amazing it was that I was able to spend so much time there and uh, really devote myself completely to my spiritual life and spiritual life in general, and really be outside of consumer culture and living communally, sharing things, repairing things, not buying things. That was a gift that, you know, being on this side of things, I'm really glad that I did that. Um, does that answer your question? I think the the other piece of it was, you know, really getting intimate with the land. Uh, I lived in an A-frame cabin with electricity, but no running water. Uh, I did hermitage once a year, which is like no electricity, no running water, no timepiece, no books. So just getting very intimate with the land, which is incredibly beautiful and magical here. So that was also a huge part of that life. Yeah, I just feel like a settling in my body, even as you speak about it. Um, and, and then what rises for me is this beautiful awareness. It's almost like a tapestry or a, um, like a quilt in that in everyone's life. Um, and it feels as if in modern life, maybe more than in the past, there are these, um, eras or periods, and then we move on to something new and it feels like tarot is a really beautiful, uh, tool to accompany that because it's almost like you, you know, you pull these cards and you have this view and then that dissolves and then you pull cards again, you know? So it's this, Mm. what the question is, but it's this idea of like impermanence, right? So we like really dedicate ourselves, and then, then we're called and we recognize, well, maybe now we're called to something else. I love that. That's a great view. I think I'm going to like <laughs> add that to the story. You know, part of the story that I tell now about why I left at the time I left, I told a very particular, messy, complicated story because that's how it felt. But from here, I left because I realized I'm an artist, not a monk. And that was something I learned there. Art practice was part of our spiritual training. That was something else that everyone who lived there had to do. And so over the course of you know, over 10 years, I developed a practice of art making that eventually built a bridge that was my sort of exit from there. And that is now such a huge part of my life. And I love what you were saying about, you know, impermanence with the cards. I do think that my training made me, helped me 
become so utterly familiar with my own mind that when I am reading tarot for other people, I think things can come through. I'm not saying I'm 100% recognizing what's mine and not mine. And I have such an utter familiarity with my mind that I am not so worried about, you know, am I reading clearly for this person or is it me? Of course, it's me because it's not someone else. And I do think I've, um, what's the word, sort of calibrated and cultivated and maintained sort of a channel that I can use um, to be able to read for people. Mm -hmm. And one thing I really appreciated in your work, and I think you've written a book about it, is that the questions we ask, like the clarity in the question is akin to the clarity in the answers. And so I think so often in my own life, I know, like if I'm feeling lost or or if everything is kind of swirling and it just doesn't feel right, I, I don't even know the right question to ask. So, so the right question leading to the, you know, the answer that will give us some insight is really key. Definitely. And even as I hear you saying that, I think that's kind of an inheritance for my Zen training too. I always felt like I had the wrong kind of question when I lived there. You know, the question was always like, who am I? And I'm like, that's not my question. Um, and I think the way of the rose uh, and the 54-day novenas that I do with that community where we ask, what is my heart's desire? I think that is the most confronting question that I've ever asked myself. That is the most confronting koan that I sit with. And I think that that is such an orienting question in those moments that you're talking about where everything feels confused and to make it really small, what do I want like now? <laughs> what is my heart desiring right now? Uh, I think that that's really important. And as in terms of questions, you know, and I have written a book that we're actually, I think is going to start shipping at the end of next week called okay. Tarot is Questions. You know, the question that we ask is what the oracle is responding to, is what the tarot is responding to. And so if our question is not clear or not touching the heart of the matter for us, the response will also not touch the heart of the matter. And it can be really helpful to have an interlocutor to sort of zero in on that question. Sometimes we we need someone to kind of probe a little bit before we can get to that. And I think what you said about, you know, when you find the right question, that question can be called upon over and over again uh, as, as an answer in and of itself, you know. And I guess what I find in my healing work with people is that, and in my own life, I'm often surprised that we resist asking the real question. Like we resist that, even that question of like, what's my heart desire? I know, I noticed that people will like often say three or four things before they really get to their heart's desire. It's like, why do you think that is? <laughs> I don't know. I think it's such an interesting thing to observe though, because I've seen it in myself and I've seen it in a, like so many other people. I it's, I don't know if it's a form of protection or if we have to sort of let our guard down be, before we can be vulnerable enough to really ask for what we want. Because if we ask for what we want, then it's out there and yeah, I don't know, but, but I do see it as a, as a common thread among humans. Totally. I yeah. I think, I think one thing it always makes me, I don't know if it was Freud who said this and I'm like no Freud fan, but you know, I think he said, um, 
you know, the other side of a fear is a wish. Like I think that our fears and our wishes are actually very closely related. I also think that some part of us knows that if we really put it out there, what we really want, that our life is going to have to change or that something is going to have to change that we've come to rely on in our feeling secure. Mm -hmm. And so I think that might be some of it. I also have been finding, and this is a question that feels very alive for me right now and has shown up in a lot of people's readings is sometimes we have to be made ready for what we want. And, you know, I can say, I want this thing to happen. And I don't actually know what that's going to mean. And so I feel like there's actually like pre-work, you know, a sort of widening of our um, channel to, or, you know, like riverbank to be able to actually receive what we're asking for, Mm -hmm. especially, you know, people socialized as women and girls. I think we're really conditioned to orient around other people's needs and, you know, as I continue to work with people, just seeing how hard it is to actually receive care, money, what we say we want, you know, any, any of those things, you know, we, like, I long for attention and love and I'm like, no, you know, it's excruciating. It's like this push pull. And so there's something about uh, making ourselves ready to receive what we want. That feels like a huge part of the work. Anyway, that's something I'm thinking about right now. No, I think that's so true. Um, Yeah, and whether it boils down to worthiness or condition, I think it's all of those things. Um, And that is it, you know, when have we done enough to ask for what we really want? Well, capitalism will tell us never. (laughs) Exactly. And even as I say that, I can see it being pushed, you know, like just outside of my grasp, like a carrot. Um, Yeah, I think you're right about that. Sure. In that instance, I always think of um, a question that Adrienne Marie Brown asks, which is who benefits from our feeling unworthy? Who benefits from our not being able to receive what we want? Because it's not neutral. It's not like, oh, I just can't do this. It's, you know, people benefit from our thinking our desires are selfish or thinking that, you know, we haven't worked hard enough or we aren't worthy. Yeah, that's a mic drop right there. <laughs> That's an amazing question to ask. And I ask it all the time is who's benefiting from my feeling insecure, ashamed, all all of those things. Yeah. And just pivoting a little bit to your tool at the moment, one of your tools, which is tarot. Can you, um, and I love also the way of the rose you referenced and, um, Perdita Finn was a guest and, um, and we could talk about that more, but in, in terms of your tool in spiritual care with other people, which is tarot, um, can you describe that in a way that, um, it's just interesting to me that it's such a charged word even, um, for, for some. And so can you kind of educate us on that? Sure. I don't have a lot of charge around it. Um, so thank you for like, reminding me that that's true. And it's true. I don't either, but I know some people do. So yeah, I I see it in my classes, you know, I, that people are afraid of something bad happening or some, you know, so I'm just going to speak from my own experience of it and how I use it. You know, it's a, it's a, 
Tarot decks originated in Northern Italy. So, I mean, that's also like the origins of the tarot are mysterious and people argue about it. I don't really care. They're, uh, (laughs) They're a deck of illustrated cards. And over the course of time, and they're in a particular structure, 22 major arcana or big mysteries and 56 minor arcana or little mysteries. And those uh, minor arcana are divided into four elemental suits, ace through king. And so that's the basic structure of a tarot deck. And so over time, these arcana have accrued meanings uh, by people who have commissioned decks from artists and written books, and that continues to proliferate. You can think of a tarot deck as like a mini museum of 78 images. Um, And the so-called traditional meanings, I like to remind people, are also made up. So really the power of the tarot to me is working with the image. And so I call it an oracle, which um, refers to speaking. So the images in the arcana speak messages based on the question that we ask and the position that those arcana are in in the spread. Uh, One of your former guests, Suzette Clough, does uh, oracle work through visual medicine. Amazing. And amazing. And she talks about, you know, everything is an oracle. You know, the world is an or the world is constantly speaking to us. Mm -hmm. And tarot is just one way of kind of narrowing that lane and focusing a bit and having a bit of structure. Uh, and so I have studied the so-called traditional meanings really deeply. I study all the time. I think of each arcana as a cabinet of curiosities that as time passes, it just gets fuller and fuller and fuller of meaning and association and memory and storytelling. And what I really encourage people who I work with, especially who want to learn tarot, is uh you know, once you look up a meaning in a guidebook, you can't unlook it up. And that our bodies, hearts, minds, and life are a guidebook where we're going to find meaning and story and answers that we could never find in someone else's guidebook. And I say that as someone who just wrote a guidebook. (laughs) Um, But really, uh, for me, it's I spend a lot of time with people when I do a one-on-one reading to really hone in on their question. Uh, I think a question is more than half of the reading. And if the question is clear and really, if the client feels like that's what I want to know, the message, I just pull the cards and the messages, we're both going to know what the message is during the course of the reading. I rarely am telling anyone anything that they aren't already aware of. It's a way of sort of surfacing a person's wisdom and deep inner knowing from kind of the swirling chaos that everyday life often throws us into. So hopefully, you know, a tarot session for someone feels like a gathering together and a collecting into useful meaning um, around whatever question they're asking. Mm, That's a really, yeah, because for me, it's like remembering. But I think even from a visual aspect, I mean, we see, right, it's, you know, something like 5% of what we see, we perceive. So it's also, I feel, and the way that you work with this tool is um, it's like bringing unseen into the light. Like it's always Mm. there, 
but it's into focus or into awareness. Um, yeah, in a really beautiful way. But uh, gathering is another beautiful word for it. I I love what you're saying. It's uh, oftentimes a, a strange card will show up in a strange position, and I will have no idea, you know, what it means. And I'll just sort of ask someone a question, and it'll become very obvious. And you know, it's not anything I could know about a person. Uh, but the oracle sees and speaks, you know, what, what that person is asking about. It's, I mean, I can't believe this is what I do for, for work. Cause it's so thrilling every time. Yet it also almost feels like, um, like a mirror into a place that we normally can't see very clearly, so, you know, and I guess maybe that's a, all oracles in, in terms of tools or beings are, are like that in a certain way in that um, that remembering seems important. Like, you know, it's not going to show you, I think that, you know, going back to that fear of like, well, what if I see something that I don't want to see? Or um, it's more of a remembering. And there are some tough things that we, you know, we may not want to, to deal with, but that ultimately, if and when we do, like the way forward opens. Um, can you speak to that a little bit like that nervous? Totally. Like, oh, well, what if I find out something that I don't want to know? Yeah, I love that question. There was something else that you said that I thought was also extremely astute that I wanted to um, come back to. Maybe it'll come back. But I really encourage people to see, to note their flash reactions to images, like when I pull the cards, because everything is a data point, really, you know? And if something shows up that is frightening, and I also just want to say, I don't do like predictive tarot. Mm -hmm. You know, a spread is a, mo a snapshot, a deep time snapshot of, of a moment in response to a particular question. It's, you know, and I don't do like, is this going to happen kind of right. questions. It's just not uh, because the, it, everything's always in play. Um, and I don't think that the future is predetermined that way. But I do ask people, you know, to really note that because it's good information. This is scary to me. Okay, let's explore that together. Why? You know, let's go into what's scary about it. And then let's look around the image. Let's see what's, you know, right outside the frame. Let's see if we can reframe this to surface the fear or the anxiety. And that's kind of what I'm there for is to help um, create space for that. Because even just speaking our fears and having that witnessed can be so helpful. Uh, so I really encourage people like that's, um, I think a good reader is prepared to be with people's real responses to things and real, uh, and I think that is something that my training has really prepared me to do, you know, is sitting at breakfast with people at the monastery, hearing about the worst moment of their life while we're like eating oatmeal together, you know, that's just part of the job. And, and I also encourage people when they take classes with me, I often hear like, well, what if I'm just telling myself a story that I want to hear? What if I'm like reading the cards and just like, and it's like, well, that's a very critical data point. The story you want to hear, really good to know what that is. And why not? I mean, that's another word for, I mean, that's another description of perhaps your heart's desire, isn't it? Right. I mean, 
So when people say that, I'm like, make sure you get real detailed about that story <laughs> that you want to hear. You know, that's and and I think that it's really helpful if you know we can see everything that arises in the reading as a data point, emotional responses, fears, surprises, and that nothing has to take on any extra weight, you know, that's going to make things feel the, the idea I hope after a reading is that someone feels like they have more space around what, you know, whatever it is. The other thing that I wanted to say um, was you were talking about how it can be hard to see these things, you know, to surface these things. And I just want to name that I don't live in a monastery anymore. And yet I live a contemplative life that is much slower than the average person's life. I don't work a 40-hour work week. I don't have children. Um, I don't have, you know, big caretaking responsibilities. And so I am able to, I think that the speed of our culture makes it very difficult for people to feel and receive their own messages. Uh and just the the busyness and the fullness of most people's life, just trying to survive and make their life work. And so I that's part of my work is uh, studying a lot and not working a lot and having a slow life. Uh, I think that makes it easier for me to listen. I would absolutely agree with that. And I wonder then from that, well, I just first have to ask, do you still eat oatmeal? No. <laughs> oh my gosh. Just like when you asked the question, like I had a whole like sensation in my body. that was like, it was like a full body internal wretch. That's no. So um, <laughs> that's so funny. Okay. Um, I ate peanut butter and jelly sandwiches every day from kindergarten through eighth grade. And my kids cannot fathom that I did that. And I still like peanut butter. They're like, mom, how did you do that? I'm like, I don't know. Um, Amazing. And I wouldn't <laughs> grab it every day by any means. But um, but what I wanted to ask was out of this slowness, um, how does art play into that? How does creativity emerge from that space for you? Mm, mm, what a delicious question to be asked. Thank you for that. When I was living at the monastery, I discovered uh, mosaic and I started foraging my own stone and cutting it. And it's a wow. very slow medium. And I was working with blue stone on the mountain that I lived on. And then I switched to watercolor, which is like the fastest medium. And what was so powerful for me about art making and creativity was that. It was a way of making a mark or setting a piece of rock that I cut into thin set cement and something would emerge visually that I could see. And it was like this externalization of something that was inside of me. And I didn't know where it came from. Many of my paintings for a while, I painted, speaking of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, I painted the same painting over and over again, probably over a hundred times. Wow. And when I showed them to people, they showed me, they pointed me to Australian Aboriginal women's art, the dot paintings, which I'd never seen before. Wow. And I was like, oh, 
okay. It was, you know, it felt very similar to channeling something. You know, I, my training had taught me how to show up over and over and over again, unconditionally, despite how I might be feeling, to show up and to kind of see what happened. And once I had materials in my hand to actually create something visual, as I showed up, what showed up was like, oh, there's a whole world coming through this. And I didn't know that about myself. I didn't know that I was an artist. And it also, my art practice taught me how to be alone in a way that felt really good. I was not, before I moved to the monastery, I was not able to be by myself in a way that felt settled. And my art making really gave me that regulating, secure feeling of I can be with myself in a way that feels deeply pleasurable. I feel like my art practice really introduced me to pleasure. That was my doorway was, I don't know what's happening, but this feels amazing. And I describe my last couple years at the monastery doing art, waking up at three in the morning before meditation to like mix cement and make mosaics as like the love affair of my life. I would like sneak off with my, go to the studio. (laughs) And that was my, it was like my lover. So I think that that, I'm not sure if that answers your question, but it's always nice to kind of relive the, the torrid affair with my art practice. Yeah. I love the way you describe that. And I love this idea of receiving, right? I mean, it's so feminine, divine feminine, but it's also this, I don't know. It's like this, um, offering to everyone that, I mean, we're all likely able, more than able to receive in different ways, right? For some people, it comes through as your art in that moment or, um, as mothering the world or, you know, as writers, or it's so unique for everyone, but that sense of receiving and actually being able to draw it through into matter, I think is likely one of the most satisfying parts of being human. Oh my gosh. So fundamental to being human. You know, Brene Brown says unused creativity is not benign. Yeah. It's malignant. And I believe that that's true. And shout out to Suzette Clough because this is her dharma is that she uses uses visual medicine to, and you can see, I'm sure why I was so drawn to her work and why I work with her is uh, that feeling of instead of like, I'm going to make this thing and I'm going to control how it all turns out is sort of like letting something come through and speak. And when I left the monastery, I very clearly chose to not butter my bread with my art practice because it's medicine for me. So I didn't want to tie my creativity in that making visual art to how I was going to like make rent. Mm -hmm. So I didn't do that. And And that's still a very sacred, a lot of my art making ends up being for other people. I make things for people, but I cannot let it enter the market in that way. Although, you know, my book is very creative and has visual art in it. Um, But yeah, my, my art practice is my medicine. 
So beautiful. And I also love how if we're aware and open, we find other people who are, you know, teachers for us, mentors, and they might be on the other side of the world. It's just such a fascinating moment to be alive in it in when you're really keenly open and looking. A thousand percent. I know, you know, Zoom is kind of like the bane and also makes everything possible, like this conversation and, you know, the classes that I, you know, everything. So can you tell us about your book that you said is coming out next month? Yes. Yes. So it's called Tarot is Questions. And I actually started writing it last July 11th. I wrote the first post. And basically, I set up an assignment for myself that I was going to write about a Tell Cocoon's tarot deck called Tarot is Color. She was an, uh, a surrealist painter and uh, an esotericist. And in the late 70s, she created a tarot deck using enamel paint color fields, very abstract. And so I pulled a card every day for 78 days and and did a little procedure and wrote about it. And I used uh, questions as a way of, instead of saying, this is what this card means, to basically ask questions to elicit a sort of queen of pentacles experience from someone's own life so that they can begin to encode the arcana with their own life experiences and stories. And so I I started posting them on social media and on my website, and I knew I was going to make them into a book, a workbook. And as I was writing the front matter for the book, I received an email from someone who had taken a Tarot 101 class with me who lives locally. And she said, I'm starting a independent press. Do you have any publishing projects? <laughs> like really, actually, that's my, what happened. Mana from heaven, like ask and you will receive. I was literally right, working on the introduction when I got the email from her. Wow. And she is a book artist and reads a graphic alchemist. And so this book is a collaboration of my writing and illustrations with her color work and printing magic. And the process of working on it with her has been so fun and pleasurable and delicious that it feels like a material in the book, like that when people receive the book, they're going to actually feel the juiciness of our collaboration. And so how it works is there's some introductory chapters about what tarot is for me, about questions as technology, about the ways that the culture constrains our imagination. There's a short chapter about desire and pleasure. And then there's my writings on the arcana on one page. And on the facing page is is an interactive page. It's an open space with some abstract motifs on it where people can either answer the questions that I ask or curate their own meanings or basically participate in creating the book. So it's a tarot workbook that each person is going to make for themselves. Wow. That sounds thrilling. Where, where can we get it? It is available exclusively from Cosmic Doghouse Press, and that's CosmicDoghousePress.com. And that's uh, Aurora Brush is the woman who runs Cosmic Doghouse Press. And it's an independent community-based press that does, you know, risographic printing and zines and is really attuned to the needs of the community that it's in. And that's, I mean, just felt so fated um, for this project to work with someone in that way. Oh, it really sounded 
synchronistic and kismet all at the same time. And I will make sure and we link that in the show notes. I wonder too, if someone's listening and they're really resonating with you, how, how you work with people. Yeah. So I do one-on-one consultations with people. Uh, and then I, I, yeah, thank (laughs) you. And then I also do workshops, uh, tarot 101, asking good questions and using tarot to work with the dead are three workshops that I run kind of on a semi-regular basis. And, um, my favorite thing that I do is the study tarot series. And those are group cohorts where we meet twice a month over zoom. And I provide a whole host of materials and we go through, um, the arcana, by constellation, the magician and the aces, the high priestess and the two, so on and so forth. And those cohorts are between six and eight people. And you want to talk about magic and weaving is you get a group of people in a Zoom room talking about their interpretation, what they see. Nothing beats the group experience. The meaning that gets generated is so unbelievable. And they're a lot of fun. So, um, and I also have an in-person once a month circle happening in Kingston, New York. And all of that is on my website. Wonderful. Shay, it's been a delight. It really has. I feel like I could talk to you for hours, um, but I think we will likely land it here. Um, I want to thank you for um, for the journey that you have been on and how you have, how you have woven um, such wisdom into your life and now how you're you're serving others with that wisdom i really just would highly recommend um anyone listening to reach out to you i think you're a very gifted healer and teacher and i want to say thank you thank you so much this has been absolutely delicious i really appreciate the conversation thank you shay 